Hey everyone, so uh, last week we sent out the call for a live show and you listened. Our live episode on September 19th in New York City is already sold out, but you can get in on the New York action still because on September 26th and 27th in Brooklyn, GTM is convening the leading thinkers, designers, and businesses behind New York Rev. Seriously, this isn't some backslapping event where everyone congratulates each other about what a great job they're doing. We are going to go from the 30,000-foot view all the way down into the most complicated, difficult details on this reform effort, all led by our incredibly smart research team and folks on the ground in New York government and in the regulatory sphere that are dealing with these issues, and of course, utilities as well. So, you know, everyone's going to be there who has a stake in this process. If you're doing business in the state or if you're in policy or consulting and just trying to get a handle on the New York Rev process and what it perhaps means for your state, this is absolutely where you need to be. Again, the New York Rev Future event is on September 26th and 27th in Brooklyn. And you, Energy Gang listeners, because you're loyal listeners, we like to reward you. 15% off you get on checkout. So go to greentechmedia.com slash events, sign up for New York Rev Future, and use the promo code ENERGYGANG for a 15% discount. And lastly, big ups to Mission Solar. Thanks for sponsoring the show, Mission. Mission Solar is, of course, a module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas, and it operates a 260-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules, every single one of which is made in the Texas facility, offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Go visit Mission Solar at the upcoming Solar Power International Conference at booth 3975. SPI is uh, approaching very fast in Las Vegas, and the mission folks will be there at booth 3975. You can also find out more at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Well, we made it. We finished summer without nuclear war or an international catastrophe, or a major one anyway. And now we can calm our nerves with pumpkin spice everything. You know, we're old enough to remember when summer was a time to relax. The news cycle would slow down a bit. The president would take a bit of time at Camp David. Members of Congress would go home to their local fairs and eat fried foods and yuck it up with their constituents. And we'd all wait for the fall TV schedule to arrive. Well, now we're living in a never-ending season of chaos, both in politics and in the business world. We just don't get breaks anymore. There is no such thing as a slow news cycle. And to top it all off, America is facing another catastrophic hurricane this week. So in this episode, as we come back from the unofficial last weekend of summer and we take a breath, prepare for the fall conference season and look to the four final months of the year, we're checking in on the stories that we think will define the remainder of 2017 and that played a role throughout the summer. As usual, I've got our guides here with me, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Catherine is a partner with 38 North Solutions. She's based in Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Hello. You're in a new studio space. I am. Our shared office space has a new building, and it has a podcast recording studio built in. So it's it's now part of the way things have to be. 
Jigger is the president of Generate Capital. He's also in Washington, uh, about to head up to Vermont, and we'll we'll see each other maybe tonight up in Burlington, Vermont. That's right. It's going to be great to have a little shindig in Vermont. A lot of good people there, and we will be doing a panel discussion on Jigger's favorite topic, creating climate wealth, with a, a bunch of luminaries in the retail and energy investment world and in the incubator space. It's going to be a pretty wide-ranging panel, and there'll be a lot to talk about on climate solutions. So this episode is a bit of a potluck. Um, I've asked Catherine and Jigger to each bring stories that they're monitoring closely over the coming months, and at the end of the year, we'll probably check in and see how they played out. So, Catherine, you're up first. Um, you're you're there in D.C. poking around the halls of Congress, and I presume that that's going to be taking up a lot of your time heading into the fall. What should we be paying attention to related to the congressional agenda, and specifically what's on your agenda? Yeah, there is a lot going on as Congress comes out of recess this week. Um, I know some people view it as the eclipse. They don't want to look directly at Congress, but I have to do this every day, so I'm immune to it. Um, there are a bunch of big ticket items that they have to resolve, like the Hurricane Harvey relief package and the debt ceiling um, and the continuing resolution to keep the government open beyond the end of the month. So um, they're actually having to work in a very bipartisan fashion because if Speaker Ryan tries only to get something through the House. He has the Freedom Caucus he bumps up against um, if he chooses not to involve Democrats. And the same thing happens on the Senate side where really you need to have bipartisan support to get all of these things done. So they are actually all talking to each other. Um, the tricky part is whether they also include DACA uh, reform in that as well. I, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But sort of these are the big ticket items they have to get done in September to raise the debt ceiling, give some relief to the folks in Houston, and to keep the government open. And then they'll do this short-term continuing resolution, which funds the government and all of the programs that we love at the same levels that they've been funded at. And then they'll pass a larger omnibus bill before the end of the year, which will then have all of the really specific appropriations numbers for all of the different programs like ARPA-E and all the things, uh, the R&D programs that we care about. So um, appropriations will continue to go on. They're still marking up those bills to try to make sure that they fund different parts of the government. But in the short term, they're going to keep it open um, at level funding. So that's what's happening on the funding side. Wait, for those of us who are not steeped in congressional history, when was the last time Congress actually passed a budget? instead of a continuing resolution? Do you know the date? So, I mean, the budget is slightly different. So they don't have to pass a budget until FY for the FY19 bill. So they'll be doing that next year. But they did pass a budget. They just, um, the continuing resolution, they did have an omnibus bill last year. So yes, continuing resolutions allow them to keep going until they're able to pass a larger bill. But it's been fairly recently that they've done it. So we're, we're, not, we're not in too bad a shape. Um, the issue is that the but that the deal is going to look a lot different from the president's budget request, and the trick is making sure that programs that people care about are supported in the appropriations process, so that uh, really important programs don't fall through the cracks. Well, of course, one of the more um, imminent issues is what to do about uh, Hurricane Harvey relief there in Texas and and along the Gulf Coast, and. Um, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said recently that he thinks Congress should basically do what members of Congress have attempted to do, to do before, which is tie relief 
to the debt ceiling. And if uh, members of Congress can't agree on the debt ceiling, then we could see a government shutdown. So I feel like we've maybe had this conversation every year. <laughs> we could probably replay this conversation from a few years ago or back, you know, during the Hurricane Sandy days. What's the deal with the debt, the debt ceiling issue tied to Hurricane Harvey relief? And will that happen, do you think? So I think the political dynamics are somewhat different because with Sandy, it hit more, uh, frankly, blue states and Houston is in a deep red state. And so a lot of the people who voted against Sandy relief are begging for funding for Hurricane Harvey relief. So it's very different political dynamic. Um, I think what this does- Catherine, this is America. We don't play politics (laughs) with spending like this. Everything is political. You just hope that it's not all partisan. So what this has done is it's really brought everybody to the table. So um, Minority Leader Schumer and um, Minority Leader Pelosi on the House side are all coming together with um, with the Republican leadership to really craft something that makes sense for everybody. And I think that they have some broad strokes on and, and an agreement on how to move forward on this, which is really great. It shows that they're all trying to work together to get this done. And it's in, to everybody's interest that we raise the debt ceiling and that we provide relief uh, for hurricane victims. Okay, on to taxes. You know, when this administration first started tax reform, comprehensive tax reform was at the top of the agenda. It has since slipped And uh, now we're back having that conversation again, but it's looking less like this big comprehensive tax reform package and more like just uh, some sort of corporate tax cut. What are what is the the new version of so-called tax reform that we're seeing and does energy play into it? Yeah. So again, they're having to bring everybody together. So the principals, Schumer, Pelosi, McConnell, and Ryan met yesterday uh, in the White House. The the tax principals from uh, Senate Finance and Ways and Means, which are the committee, the committees of jurisdiction on both sides of the aisle, they're meeting today, evidently, and I think they're pretty close to the parameters being done. My understanding is that it really is going to be what you say, a simple knocking points off of the corporate rate. We had heard Mnuchin talk about $2 trillion worth of, you know, there was this sort of math error, and I use it in air quotes, of $2 trillion from the budget where Mnuchin said this was going to, there was going to be this great economic growth. We think that is what the dollar amount of this package is going to be something like $2 trillion. And back of the envelope, that's about 10 points off the corporate rate. So from 35 to 25%, I don't know if ex- that's exactly what's going to happen because they may want to do a few other things like, um, you know, in the end, they may end up throwing in some of the extenders and orphans and other provisions, but they're not in that level of specificity right now. They're just trying to get the broad outlines of the package. I don't think that the uh, solar and wind tax credits are going to be touched. I just don't think they're going to get that granular in this. And those have already been phased out and essentially reformed. So I I don't think that's going to be part of this package. But I do think there will be uh, some kind of a corporate reduction. I saw that they were talking about um, using as a pay for uh, eliminating the deductibility of interest and you know, and then basically making permanent the accelerated depreciation, which would be a huge benefit to the renewable energy industry. Yeah, it would. Um, the interest deductibility, um, I think that's uh, much more controversial. That might be harder to get over the finish line. Um, accelerated depreciation would be great. If we could get it for a lot of other technologies and innovation going forward, that would be 
super helpful. So we'll have to to see how that shakes out. I don't think they're they've reached that level of detail yet. Right now, they're just trying to come to an agreement on what the broad outlines are of what they're going to try to get done. And, you know, they're going to try to use reconciliation, which means they only need 50 votes plus Pence, basically, in the Senate. Um, but we'll see. If they do it bipartisan, maybe, it, you know, maybe that won't be necessary. Well, it sounds like because of the limited nature of what they're attempting to do here, and because there's general support among Republicans for tax credits that renewables will largely be left alone. But are any groups sharpening their swords, looking at, um, you know, different maybe technology specific or industry specific tax credits, not just renewables, but are are you hearing or seeing advertisements or messaging from groups like, uh, let's say, Club for Growth or Heritage Foundation or others that are that are sharpening their knives to gut some of this stuff as part of this process? Yeah, I haven't seen much overt from them. I've seen ads from the nuclear industry, certainly for nuclear credits, but not, uh, I haven't seen a lot of negative press around uh, the renewables credits. I just, I don't think they're a big enough ticket item to be able to uh, use them in a real way when you're having sort of a broad corporate tax cut. But certainly we have to be careful and mindful and make sure that this is that we're not uh, that, that we don't ignore it. So, Catherine, I'd love your take on um, the DOE review that Joe Barton wants to do with Senator Weldon. Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to just talk about that. So on the House side, the Energy and Commerce Committee and Walden is the chair of that committee. Um they are taking a look at the DOE authorization bill, which has not been reauthorized since 1977 in a real way. And so he wants to take a real look at that. I think that's a huge lift, especially um, when you think about what the Senate would have to do, too. I think they would meet with some opposition in the Senate on whatever they decide. I don't think it's a bad conversation to have. And he's actually doing a series of hearings called Powering America, where he's talking about the grid, um, innovation, reliability, resilience. Today, they're having a hearing on the role of PURPA. On September 12th, they're having a hearing on reliability, and they've invited all kinds of resources to come and testify about reliability. And then later in September, they're going to they're going to have a hearing on the role of the, con- of the consumer in innovation. So they're really um, majority and minority side are really looking, trying to take deep dives into different issues. I think the DOE conversation is much bigger. And, you know, how to what's the role of the of the 17 labs? What's the mission of the department? I think that's going to that's a much longer conversation. Um, and it would have to be not just work through the House, but also the Senate. Just to put myself on the record on this, I think we're definitely, you know, past peak oil on the conventional side. And I think that the original mandate for DOE has still not been met. We have not figured out how to move past oil, particularly when all incremental oil in the world now is coming from unconventional sources that cost over 50 bucks a barrel to get out of the ground. So here's what the mission of the Department of Energy reads now. Um, The mission of the Energy Department is to ensure America's security and prosperity by addressing its energy, environmental, and nuclear challenges through transformative science and technology solutions. So that's pretty broad. It is. I still think we have a world of hurt coming. I think when you look at the gasoline price spikes from Harvey, and then there are going to be more price spikes from Irma, and when you just think about where we are in the world today— I mean, folks are giving up on being able to find new conventional oil sources and fracking doesn't help. I mean, I I just I think that the 
the world, including many of us in renewable energy, is still addicted to oil. And my sense is we have a very short period of time to get off of oil. We actually have a much longer period of time to get off of coal, which we're succeeding at doing. But we have a very short period of time to get off of oil. And I think there's a world of hurt coming. Another topic that Chairman Walden is going to talk about, which is relevant to this discussion, is the renewable fuel standard and trying to figure out how do we um, do we need to rethink that the 10 percent requirement of ethanol and gasoline. Uh, It's been and it's very controversial because you you pit the um, middle of the country corn states against the oil industry and against the environmentalists. So um, that's going to be a big conversation that they have uh, in the House of Representatives as well. What else, Catherine? Anything else uh, on the docket? Yeah, one more thing. I wanted to go to the Senate uh, Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. So remember, they passed an energy bill last year that uh, they were in conference with the House version of the bill. And because there was no lame duck at the end of last year after the election, there was no legislative time. They weren't able to get it over the finish line. Right, but this was a rare showing of bipartisan support Right, 85 votes in support of this energy bill. So what they were able to do this time is rather than having to to mark it up in committee, they could just take it directly to the floor. So it is teed up. So during any kind of lull in activity, and it was ready to go um, when the kind of healthcare debate took over before recess, um, the energy bill is ready. They've been calling through the amendments that are, you know, that are in the line for it. And they're just waiting for a lull in the calendar to put it up on the Senate floor. And they really want to do it. Both sides of the aisle do. They they just want to get this done. It's got a lot of things that they care about. And then that kind of sets the bar. And and I don't know that the House will do a matching one, but at least let's get something done on the Senate side. They also uh, tomorrow have the confirmation hearing for the final two FERC commissioners, uh, Kevin McIntyre, who is slated to be the chair, and Rich Glick, who is the Democrat, who would um, replace Colette Honorable. They hope to get these folks in place by the first FERC meeting September 20th. This is a lot to ask because they first have to go through their uh, confirmation hearing this week. And then the committee has to then take a mark up and take a vote and discuss and then they have to pass it on the floor. So as long as there aren't any holds on nominations, um, potentially able to get a bunch of these folks done and in place. But this is a this is a pretty quick timeline. Um, and then the other thing in the Senate is they are doing a lab hearing in the fall to, to take a look at what the national labs are doing. So that's kind of happening in the Senate. So there's actually a lot going on. Um, it's just that it's, there's not necessarily legislation being passed relevant to energy right now, but it's all getting teed up. So it's a really important time to engage. Well, for those who think that uh, Congress is suffering from a state of rigor mortis, there is a slight bit of movement here. So when, uh, when, not when, dead a, when yet. a limb, it's not dead yet, as we like to say, when, when a limb twitches or, or, or an eyelash twitches, we'll let you know about it. And perhaps there will be something related to energy that comes out of this Congress. Uh, we'll move to Jigger's story in a second, but first I want to mention our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. Uh, thanks, Mission, for supporting the show. You know, America's booming solar industry it's just growing. It's it's growing to over 260,000 people. We're going to hit 300,000 people soon. And Mission is one of those proud employers. The company's 260 megawatt solar manufacturing facility supports local U.S. production, engineering, and office jobs in San Antonio, Texas, directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. You hear that, Congress? 
Mission Solar's Texas-based location makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. And Mission Solar's in-house research and development laboratory keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality modules possible. Solar Power International is coming right up in Las Vegas on September 10th. Go meet the Mission Solar team, check out their modules, hear about their expansion plans. They're going to be at booth 3975. And for those who aren't at the event, check out Mission Solar's modules at missionsolar.com. All right, Jigger, you're up. Uh, I saw you tweet, maybe it was last night, about watching the Nissan Leaf unveiling live stream. And uh, I take it your story is related to the breakdown of the wall between transportation companies and energy companies. What is it about this trend that is particularly evident to you as we move through the end of 2017? Well, you know, this has always been just extraordinarily confusing for me. And I'm still, frankly, trying to get my brain wrapped around what we're talking about here. I think just to put everything in context for our listeners, I think we've got $7 billion of revenue at Tesla, right? The Solar City revenues is less than a billion. Um, General Motors has $166 billion of revenues, right? So when we talk about the automakers getting into the energy space, for them, doing a billion dollars of energy sales, which none of them are even close to reaching right now, um, is still nothing for them, right? And so the question really becomes, you know, sort of how does this play out? Because it's very clear that all of these automakers are going to get involved with gigafactories because they have to buy a lot of batteries to meet the electric vehicle demands over the last few, over the next few years. Separately, I think many of them like Mercedes Benz, as well as Tesla, of course, but also, you know, Nissan and others are starting to get into home charging systems because they're seeing how, um, this would be a, a second life for their used car batteries um, and other things. The other thing is that, as we all know, the auto companies are way better at marketing and sales than the utility industry is. And so the question really becomes, are they going to bring the full weight and force of their marketing departments to our industry? So how this all plays out is still very, very confusing for me, but it's damn exciting. Yeah, and do you think 2017 is a pivotal year for any of those specific offerings or sort of uh, financial trends at legacy automakers or upstarts like Tesla? Like, what are what kind of uh, metrics are you watching for as we close out the year that leads you to, that will unconfuse you, make you feel like there's a little bit more clarity in the market, if at all? Well, so I th the, what I think differentiates my thinking from that of others is in general, I'm always worried about the value side of the equation where I think almost everyone else is obsessed by the cost side of the equation. Like, so I really believe that the right car is going to be so valuable to homeowners because it literally will be able to take the entire home that you live in off grid, right? It'll also be able to provide you with a place to dump your solar, um, if you know you don't have net metering from your utility, there's all of these benefits that come from the electric vehicle battery. You can bid that capacity into the uh, California ISO market or 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 independent system operator of your choice. There's all these value streams, and I just have a really hard time 
figuring out whether the automakers will get there. I think that they're mostly going to be product companies because that's what they're good at. But in this space, product companies, as we know, um, become commodities really quickly. And so, you know, I just don't see how you differentiate yourself in this market unless you're differentiating yourself on service, which is why I wonder whether the automakers really have what it takes to be in the leading position from a brand perspective for the customer, or whether it's going to be a new company that actually takes that role, um, that really integrates all these technologies together as one package for the consumer. So, but Jigger, from a branding perspective, I mean, car brands are way more known than uh, utility brands. So, a car, I would think a car company would be considered kind of a trusted resource for all kinds of other commodities if they were to get into that business, right? Oh, I completely agree. That's what I'm looking for, I guess, to answer Stephen's question is, do the auto companies understand that they have to actually change their business model, right? Do they understand that it's not enough for Mercedes-Benz to come to me and say, I've partnered with Vivint, I'd like for you to put a battery in your home, plus solar panels on your roof, do they understand that what they need to do is actually create a Mercedes-Benz knock, which they could then which is a you know network operation center, which they can then outsource to you know any number of people like Tendril or Opower or Demand Response or you know Enernock or others to actually do the services part of it, but that they actually have to be that brand to the customer, and then all of the twenty-two dollar checks and forty-three dollar checks and whatever that comes in from doing all of that all get sorted by the auto companies. I think that they are going to punk out and say, we don't want to do that. We just want to sell you the product. And then we want those other companies to separately sell you the services package, which means that they're basically relinquishing the control of the customer. But I don't think that's punking out. I mean, it may well be that they just recognize they can't do it well. If there's anything I've learned about uh, examining the corporate innovation, you know, these innovation units within large corporations, it's that a lot of it is BS, that these innovation units are walled off. Um, you know, executives in the C-suite don't have any idea what these sort of skunkworks teams are doing within their own companies. Um, and, and I think that the, the, the same problem we see in the utility space, where there's a fear that utilities just become poles and wires companies, may happen in the auto space, where they're just steel and rubber companies. And maybe that's okay, right? Like, Sure, they might relinquish the software and the customer connection, but if they can continue to roll off cars that, that are used in different ways, maybe that's not such a bad thing. But uh, I do agree with you that I think they'll probably relinquish some of this innovation just because it's not their core strength. Uh, they would push back and say, hey, we're, we're doing this stuff as fast as we can, and certainly every major auto company out there, you know, the top 10 or 15 automakers are working on everything from autonomous vehicles to sharing fleets to electrification. So there is a massive recognition of this shift. The question is how well they can do it. And no one can really answer that question uh, clearly yet. Well, but I think that the answers will come about over the next 12 months. I think so you think that that's that quickly. That's that's pretty quick. Well, no, I mean, it's not that like, it'll be definitive. But you know, like we're in the business of seeing trends before other people see them. And I think that I will be able to pick who the winners and losers are within the next 12 months, because it all comes down to convincing a consumer to put 
like control of their assets in someone else's hands, right? Because there's no way for an individual homeowner to use an app on their phone to optimize all of these other value streams. You have to outsource it to another party. And whatever that group is who steps up and says, please outsource it to me because I'm the group that actually is willing to invest the dollars necessary to do that is going to win the game. And yeah, unfortunately, I think the automakers should be the group because I think it's more about brand and trust than it is about technical capability because all of that stuff can be outsourced. I just don't think they're going to step up to the plate. Well, and I wonder what this does to the utility regulatory compact, because there's nothing that can kill innovation faster than that. So I wonder um, if you can work on this outside of that. And I guess you can, but at some point, they're going to bump into the regulators. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, once you have uh, auto executives basically on the same side as a lot of the traditional disruptors in the electricity industry, you forced such a dramatic change in the conversation. I mean, that conversation has already changed, changed pretty quickly, but like, and they will uh, inevitably throw their voices into the ring in the electricity sector, because that intersection is very real today. I, I just don't think you're not, you're not really providing the gravity of the emotional thing here, right? I, I, I don't think people love their electric utility companies. I think there are people... Do you need me to be more emotional? Yeah, I think people do (laughs) love their cars. I mean, I do think people spend an extra $10,000 on the car that is more beautiful than the other. And once cars become fully just functional, where all they do is get you from point A to point B, people won't pay that anymore. And when people don't pay that anymore, all of the profit in the car company goes away. And that it's just an extraordinary thing to see. Like, I mean, every like event that you go to that's sponsored by the automakers, every Super Bowl ad that like, you know, gets paid for by the automakers, that entire industry goes away if they don't make that extra $10,000. I mean, I've never been a car person, so I just don't care, right? I think car companies are going to do just fine. They're going to sell a lot of cars. We're going to have tons of fleets. And me, the consumer, I'm going to benefit because those cars are going to be used more efficiently and I'm not going to have to buy one. I think you're right, but I just think that there's a lot of our listeners that are much sadder about the auto industry dying than the utility industry dying. Yeah, for sure. Well, if if you have a strong opinion on this, please tweet at us because we'd love to hear from you. We cover electricity so much and uh, the car enthusiasts and the folks, the futurists out there who are thinking about the future of the automobile sector, we want to hear from you. So tweet at us at the Energy Gang or at Jigger Catherine or myself. So I'll go into my third story. It is the Cineva Solar World Trade case. Uh, It is the defining story for both solar and Washington politics generally this year and into next year. If you do want the background and the state of play on this trade case, go back a few episodes and listen to our analysis of the recent International Trade Commission hearing. But just a quick recap, this spring, the bankrupt Georgia solar manufacturer, Suniva, filed a rare petition under this 1974 Trade Act, and then Solar World joined, uh, which is another struggling solar producer in insolvency. Uh, the ITC, the International Trade Commission, they accepted the petition, they held hearings last month, and the two companies are basically asking for strict p- trade penalties on solar equipment imported from anywhere in the world. So at the tariff levels requested, this would kind of this would likely double the price of imported modules and according to many pretty much most in the solar industry it would destroy downstream demand 
Um, so the vast majority of players in the solar industry, including dozens of equipment manufacturers and conservative political groups, they're against this case, except, of course, Seneva and Solar World and their lawyers and a few scattered supporters. So why is this important? Why am I bringing this up again? For one, it's very likely that the, the international trade commissioners will determine injury. Prepare for them to determine injury and that some sort of penalties um, should 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 be added to imported solar modules. I was um, after our conversation recently, in which Jiggers and Catherine both said, you know, expect some sort of penalties. I was talking to a lawyer who worked on a major steel case under Section 201 in the early 2000s. That's like one of the most recent. It's pretty famous. And she said uh, it's true that the likelihood is high that commissioners are going to side with the petitioners, with Cineva and Solar World. So if that happens, Trump, Donald J. Trump, gets to determine the fate of America's solar industry. Forget tax policy. Forget climate policy. This obscured trade law that nobody knew about in the solar industry you know, six months ago could be the most important clean energy decision of Trump's presidency. So I can already hear Jigger clearing his throat, ready to tell me why Donald Trump doesn't matter. But just a week after the ITC hearing and our debate on this, reports surfaced of Trump demanding tariffs in an Oval Office meeting. He made fun of the so-called globalists in his uh, in his meeting, asking him not to, to issue trade penalties. And then he demanded his chief of staff, bring him some tariffs. He said, bring me some tariffs. I want tariffs, any tariffs. He doesn't even know what he wants. And put some ketchup on it. And make sure that it has the Trump branding on it. <laughs> Donald- Look, I, I think I was very clear the first time we covered this that I agree with you. I think we're definitely going to find damage and it's definitely going to be in front of Trump. Now, I think that there are really smart people finally in the solar industry that are dealing with it. Like, So I think for a long time, we were doing dumb stuff like going after Heritage and Alec and others who have no influence on Trump. But I think now, like, there's a real concerted effort um, by a group of manufacturers to fund uh, conservative talk show radio ads and, you know, conservative television ads and others. Um, I think there's also one particular group who's very close with certain White House um, aides who are going in and having one-on-one meetings with Kushner and whatnot. So I think we're finally like at a point where we're doing the right smart things to be able to avoid the the wrath of you know Trump's pen. But look, I I certainly believe this is consequential. I talked to three developers last week in New York State with the Community Solar. Um, bill and it seems like pretty much every one of those projects would be underwater if they had to pay a 201 tariff. So I, I agree with you. This is consequential. I also think though that it's very complicated. So the remedy could the remedies could be really not super straightforward, and it's just this specific tariff remedy, but. It could include things like job training funds that don't have anything to do with the tariff. It could have be, could be differentiated by the size of the panels, whether they're 60 or 72 cell panels. It could be differentiated by the status of trade agreements that different countries have with the U.S. So it, it's a really complicated issue, and I think it won't look like a big piece of paper with a number on it. Um, and yet the people who present it to the White House when this goes up could essentially say to the president, here's your tariff, no matter what it looks like, or here, you know, here's here's what you want, sign off on it. And it might not have as huge an impact as we think it will have. And and 
because it's so complicated, I think it's there's less of an issue of him taking a pen to it and doing something himself. I think this is something that he's probably going to sign off on when it gets out of the ITC. That's my guess, but of course it's hard to predict. Yeah, like this this president doesn't know anything about solar or anything about this case. We can probably guarantee that. Um, I am usually not willing to make any predictions about this man. Um, and, but it's pretty clear to me that if the ITC does hand him some recommendations, tariffs that could help him claim some kind of victory, even if it's a Pyrrhic victory, he's going to seize the opportunity. But you are absolutely correct, uh, Catherine. It's not going to be just this one piece of paper with a big 73 cents a watt number on it. It it could have some nuance to it. It could be... Um, you know, a much lower number. It could have a bunch of uh, stuff attached to it. Countries will be able to renegotiate after a certain period of time. So over time, you might see uh, countries that are not under the tariff because of their renegotiation tactics. This will be an evolving document. But oh boy, I can I can imagine this president's smiling face when he has some kind of trade penalty that he can say is against China because this man wants tariffs, as he said. I mean, he doesn't get, he doesn't know anything about this case, but someone's just going to tell him that it's going to save jobs and he's going to sign it with a stroke of a pen. Well, it's, um, I mean, the reason why I don't really believe in the nuance here is because I do think that solar companies need to batten down the hatches. I mean, you know, like it, it just feels to me like this is definitely something that could end the you know existence of many solar companies in the United States, and they should be taking it very very seriously and not praying for a loophole. Totally. I mean, if if we were uh, meteorologists, we would be warning you about Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma. Like, I think this is a potentially massive deal. I really believe that this is the biggest clean tech story in the U.S. this year, and and we'll know more about it at the end of the year into 2018. So we've got a couple resources out there that I think we've mentioned in the past, but go read them. We'll put them in the show notes. Roan Resch, who used to be the president and CEO at SIA, wrote a good um, piece on business strategies for negotiating potential tariffs, what to look out for, how to structure your contracts, um, when, how to buy. That is really crucial, and he does have some good advice there. Barry Cinnamon of Spice Solar wrote another good piece that kind of echoes what Roan wrote and I think offers some more advice for folks on the residential side. And I just want to mention some final dates that people should be paying attention to. Coming right up on the 22nd, the ITC is going to have its decision on whether the industry has suffered harm. So we will actually know what happens next on September 22nd. And if they do determine injury, then we've got another hearing on October 3rd. And then potential recommendations on November 13th. So this goes right into the holidays. And then a month later, uh, excuse me, two months later, the president will have the opportunity to issue his decision. So basically from now until January, month by month, we're going to have a new milestone to talk about. I just I do not want to downplay how significant this is. And uh, most folks I talk to believe that you know something something big will happen. Okay, maybe we can end... On a lighter note, tell our listeners something they don't know. Hopefully one of you has something positive. Um, Catherine, what's your story? 
Yeah, well, y'all are up in Vermont um, having a great time with, by the way, my husband is going up there too because UVM is his alma mater and he can't wait to be with all of you guys. Yeah, we're um, going to say hi to Dave. <laughs> yeah, he is definitely in that visionary category. Yes, he is. <laughs> um, but my what you may not know is, is a little bit of log rolling on my part, which is that um, because it's so important that we have bipartisan movement in Congress and with the administration, we have brought in a new senior principal um, to our firm, 38 North Solutions, and his name is Dave Hoppy. He's the only person to have served as the chief of staff to a Senate minor- majority leader and a House speaker. He was um, Speaker Ryan's last chief of staff until January. So um, he's an amazing guy. We worked together when we were at Quinn Gillespie. Uh, we worked together really well, and then we also had really strong personal connections because we both have he has a uh, young man with Down syndrome that he's done a lot of work on special education legislation for. And I have two kids with Down syndrome. And so he's been really kind of a mentor and a guide on that part of our lives. But we just uh, we're really looking forward to having him on our team and being, you know, growing even more um, clean energy clients, but also technology and other interesting innovative companies. That's fantastic. Congrats on congrats on the hire. Um, when you talk to him, does he echo basically what you say, which is that, you know, the stuff that you're you're talking to lawmakers about and advocating for on the renewables and storage side? Uh, it gets a lot of support from from Republicans. Yes. As a matter of fact, he was working during that last omnibus deal on the phase out. He was actually lobbying at that point for the solar industry. So he has seen this before. Um, and then when he was in the speaker's office, I met with him on a number of clean energy and technology issues, and he was very open. I mean, these are economic issues and innovation jobs. It's not so much about climate change in the environment. I think that there are different ways to talk to people and he can also help us do that. So he can help us think through, you know, how does the GOP think about these issues and how can we talk to them? And, uh, you know, he's just going to be a great resource. Jigger, what's your story? Well, mine's a little bit boring, but um, I'm going to be at SPI (laughs) (laughs) on Sunday. And, um, uh, through Tuesday. And SIA just unveiled um, the next version 2.0 of the standard commercial PPA contract. And I really do think this is a big deal. One of the reasons why, you know, I believe that the US rooftop market for commercial has been um, faltering is just because I don't think that standard documents have really been created for that sector like they have for um, residential. And so I just want to make sure that everyone knows that the new documents are ready. And um, you know, folks should be using it because um, I do think it dramatically reduces the cost of financing um, commercial rooftop solar um, by using them. That's great. That's really good to know. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about it at a sold out workshop on Sunday. Woohoo! <laughs> For those who work in commercial solar, that is like the most exciting thing that you could possibly bring up. Have you, I mean, you have, Jigger. If anyone out there has ever talked to someone in commercial solar development about uh, standardization, they will talk your ear off for hours. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will. Actually, I'm meeting a bunch of people at the Luxor Hotel Sunday night to talk the ear off about this after the workshop. So if you guys want to join us, it's uh, Sunday at 8 p.m. at the Tequila and tortilla or something at uh, the Luxor Hotel. But oh, one other thing I would want to say was that as we're recording, um, Hurricane Irma is right over Necker Island. 
uh, where Richard Branson has decided to stay and ride out the storm. So I wish him well. We do wish him well. We wish uh, those in the Caribbean and in Florida where the storm appears to be headed well. Um, we'll be thinking of you. Hopefully you ride it out and there isn't you know massive damage like we saw in Texas. And we'll be following that in our next episode if um, something major happens and, and there's something relevant to this show, we may cover that again. But we are wishing everyone well. Um, speaking of of the marine environment, uh, marine energy specifically. I saw this video this morning of the dismantling of the first offshore wind farm in Denmark, built in 1991. It's called the Vindaboo uh, Offshore Wind Farm. And it was, I think it was 11 turbines that made up 4.5 megawatts. And it just, it's a good illustration of how far we've come. You're looking at the leading uh, turbine and blade manufacturers that are building 10, 11 megawatt machines. Uh, we're, they're talking about machines that are even bigger than that. Uh, again, the, the wind farm was 4.5 megawatts, and we've built you know over 16 gigawatts of offshore wind farms since then. So a good milestone and a really good video. If you want to look it up, you can you can YouTube it. Well, that is the end of the show. Jigger and I are off to Vermont. You can connect with us everywhere, Twitter, on the podcast app of your choosing, on Alexa, on NPR One. Uh, send us an email to podcast at greentechmedia.com. We love to hear from you. Thanks. And, of course, at Apple Podcasts, you can give us a rating and review, which is incredibly helpful. A ton of you have gone and done that recently. I noticed a major uptick in ratings and reviews. We love you. Thanks for doing it. And for those who are on the fence, uh, please feel free to go and help us out. With Jigger Shaw and Katherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>